I am opening up our next uh, aspect of our series in 1 Corinthians, um, and I'm looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Um, huge thank you to David Robotham for what I thought brilliantly unpacking uh, what he actually renamed a call to righteousness last week. I thought it was brilliant. Thank you again, David. Um, and it actually leads on very closely to what I'll be speaking on this morning. Um, I'm going to be triggering something called the Robotham Rule, and I am going to be changing the topic of my talk as well. Uh, so the topic of my talk that I was given was lawsuits. Um, but if I may, I'd like to make the topic a question instead, which is going to be a question for all of you. And that question is... right. Yeah, you skip slide. Perfect. Thank you. I'll leave it down to you for now. Thanks. Um, and the question is, we're waiting for it. Have you lost perspective? Have you lost perspective? We've heard a little bit of um, context. We heard the first part of the series from Gary where he was talking about Corinth being Sin City um, being very strategically located, um, but there being a lot going on in Corinth which wasn't aligned with what God wanted and it infiltrated the church as well. And Paul is writing to them to try and highlight some of the things that are going on that shouldn't be happening. So let's dive in now to the passage. If you've got your Bibles, please do open them. Uh, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Perfect, thank you. Okay, let me read this for us now. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels, how much more the things of this life. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that your word speaks truth to us. We thank you that we have this opportunity to delve into your word, to listen to you. And we pray that you will open our hearts to what you have to say to us this morning, Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 So the first part of the passage refers to lawsuits. And what I'd like to do is give you a quick crash course in how to trigger a lawsuit. (laughs) The wild thing is that I've actually done this. And so I feel quite qualified to be able to train you in this. And it's in eight simple steps that I want to run this through with you. So this is eight steps on how to trigger a lawsuit. Step number one. (laughs) Step number one is find a lawyer. (laughs) Any old lawyer will do. No one in particular. Any old lawyer will be absolutely fine. That's step one. Some of you may recognise that lawyer. (laughs) Step two. Befriend the lawyer. Make friends with the lawyer. Step three, go on holiday with the lawyer friend. (laughs) Step four, when on holiday, hire a very questionable vehicle with a particularly volatile handbrake. (laughs) Step five, drive the vehicle containing the lawyer to the bottom of the tallest mountain on the island. Step six, when you reach the bottom of the mountain, forcefully encourage the lawyer to become the driver of the vehicle. Step seven, near the top of the steep ascent of the mountain, when the vehicle is starting to slide backwards off the edge of the road, promptly disembark the vehicle, (laughs) leaving only the lawyer inside. (laughs) Step eight, Watch the sweating, traumatised lawyer battle for both his and the vehicle's fates. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that is the express highway of how to trigger a lawsuit. If Ben Oliver had chosen to proceed with it, his wife Kathleen would invariably have jumped in and would be looking at a class action lawsuit. <laughs> to my great relief, Ben let it slide, both the vehicle and the matter at hand, He was very gracious and inevitably it's become one of the infamous stories of our friendship. All's well that ends well. (laughs) Thankfully, Ben kept the incident in perspective. He didn't lose perspective of our friendship. The truth is, I have no personal experience of lawsuits. My understanding is that they are often deeply unpleasant for many who are involved. The phrase, no one wins in court, doesn't sound particularly appealing, does it? But we live in a world where people have grievances with one another. We see this play out in the media, in politics, in entertainment, but also in our own lives. I wonder what grievances you hold currently. So in the passage, Paul refers to the cases that were arising in Corinth as trivial, and then says in verses 2 and 3 that we will judge the world and we will judge angels. Why is he comparing these cases to us judging angels? 
What he's trying to say to the church is that these disputes are an example of lost perspective. I'm not convinced that he was aware of the full details of these lawsuits that were going on within the church. But he's lumped them all into one category, trivial. He labels them trivial and says, how much more the things of this life? I've got three sisters. I know how time passes, hey? <laughs> I've got three sisters, and I love them all dearly. This is us on my wedding day. Um, but when we were growing up, we had a lot of, of disputes. We were really scrappy. Uh, there was a lot of sibling bickering that was going on. And do you know what? I was reflecting on this, and I reckon 80% of the disputes and arguments that I had with either one of my sisters or multiple sisters... I didn't even agree with myself in the argument. But I just couldn't back down. I could not back down. I had to be seen to be right. I had to save face. I look back and I genuinely can't remember what the arguments were even about. I can't remember. They were so trivial. I had lost perspective and had become fixated on the argument at hand. So what does Jesus say about disputes? Matthew 5, 23 to 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying here that it's so important that you're reconciled promptly to others that even your offering and worship to God should be put on hold. That's staggering. Some of you may know that I work for the Christian International Development Organization, Tear Fund. One of the things I find most amazing about working for Tear Fund is their theory of poverty. And it's not what you might expect. Their theory of poverty suggests that fundamentally poverty is a symptom of a broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with ourselves, and a broken relationship with others. What I find fascinating is that we tend to focus so much on material poverty, which is a real problem globally, of course it is, but we don't tend to focus or we forget about relational poverty. And relational poverty exists when relationships with one another are broken. It's a form of poverty and brokenness, and it's not how it was designed to be. Paul's words about believers in Corinth taking one another to court are really quite firm and stark. There's no misunderstanding them. He scolds them for making their disputes public, for not resolving them within the church. It's clear that it's a terrible witness to unbelievers, and he says that the fact that there are even lawsuits present between believers means they're already completely defeated. No one wins in court. Friends, society cannot be our barometer for holiness. God makes the rules, and he sets the framework for morality. Why? Because when we do it, we make a mess. 
Look at social media. We've set the rules, and essentially we, we self-govern on social media. And, and don't get me wrong, it's not all bad, but the hatred, the vitriol, the abuse on social media platforms has spiralled out of control. I see some of what's written and I'm appalled. And you know what, it makes me think of why God flooded the earth. Why did God flood the earth? Genesis chapter six. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth, the earth had become and all of the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Thank goodness that he promised never to do it again with what we see on social media. Wow. Please, 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 can I implore you that if you have a dispute with your brother or sister, that you proactively look to reconcile with them as Jesus commands us to. Let's be people of peace who serve the Prince of Peace. We worship a God of forgiveness and reconciliation. We must be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. So the passage then goes on to tackle the two main issues which were prominent in what I'm calling carnal Corinth, because it was, but also in the church in Corinth. And these two main issues were sex and money, both of which had become forms of idolatry. And the problem with these things today, and in Corinth, but today, is that they insatiably consume us. They never fully satisfy in the way that we want them to. I met with our young people a few weeks ago, and we were talking about um, romantic relationships. That's what we were looking on. That was the topic of our discussion. And I was trying to explain to our young people why society's views on sex are so deeply flawed. And this is what I said to them. Society wants sex to be everything and nothing. Society wants sex to be everything. The pinnacle moment in the film, in the novel, everything that we strive for and aspire for, but it also wants it to be nothing. The one night stand, something that you can engage in and then just pass to the side and be done with. Society wants sex to be everything and nothing. But the truth is, sex is neither of those things. Sex is not everything, but it's not nothing. Society has lost perspective when it comes to sex. Sex is no longer treated as a gift from God. It's become an entitlement. I find it can be really challenging knowing how to engage in issues of sex and sexuality and discussions around that. Sometimes it can feel like society has particular views on sexuality and God's word is saying other things about sexuality. It can be really difficult to hold these two things in tension, I find, and know how to wrestle with them. 
if this is something that you find yourself contending with and wrestling with, there's a resource that I've used a lot in the past and that I'd really like to commend to you. I found it really, really helpful, sensitive, insightful, and informative as a resource. And it's this. It is called the Living Out website, and they help churches and society talk about faith and sexuality. It is run by same-sex attracted Christians who work in churches, who lead churches, who wrestle with this and struggle with this. There are amazing, beautiful testimonies on there of people who wrestle with these issues on a daily basis, want to share their stories. Can I encourage you to look at this as we hold these things in tension? I, I hope and pray that it will be a blessing to any of you who look at this. Money had become a big deal in Corinth, primarily because of its strategic geographical location. People had become fixated on money, and it was also becoming a real problem in the church, which is why Paul is listing some of these things in the passage. Money wasn't just something you used, it was something you strived for at almost any cost. Does that, does that sound familiar? It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Our society has lost perspective when it comes to money. Our lives revolve around it and are dominated by it. We see greed and an almost unquenchable desire for possessions and wealth all around us. And Paul warns us against this in the passage. Do you know what? When I think of money and I think of the Bible, the first thing to come to my mind is Judas. And what happened is actually quite simple. Judas lost perspective, became greedy, and chose money over Jesus. And the same behaviour was creeping into the church in Corinth. Friends, please don't choose money over Jesus. You cannot serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Don't kid yourself. Please don't choose money over Jesus. So I mentioned idolatry and sex and money both being idols in Corinth and obviously in this society as well. Um, many of you will know I grew up in Nepal. I lived there for 10 years and, and it's a Hindu country. Um, certainly was very fundamentalist Hindu when I lived there. Um, and when I lived there as a Hindu country, there were 330 million gods. 330 million gods. In Kathmandu, the city I lived in, there were more shrines than houses. So I'm very, very accustomed to living in an environment where there are tangible idols all around you can see them. They're all there. But what I find really troubling and really concerning is that we live in a society that doesn't even recognise the idols it worships. It claims to be a free society, but true freedom is found in Jesus. So um, I've never given anything up for Lent. I don't know if anyone else has given things up for Lent before. Uh, I got to the point where I was a little bit ashamed. I was like, well, I'm 
35 years old, I should have given something up for Lent. I should have made some kind of sacrifice. So um, I've given quite a few things up for Lent. And one of the things that I've given up for Lent is my phone. Don't have my phone. Um, and yeah, I mean, some of you, sharp, sharp intake of breath. Um, I was up in London last week with some of my colleagues, and when I said to them, I've given up my phone, they looked at me wondering how I was breathing. <laughs> Genuinely were concerned. People have been saying, well, what if you fall into a ditch? How are you going to contact people? I was like, well, I haven't fallen into a ditch recently, so I think I'll probably take my chances. <laughs> but the reason I gave up my phone is because I recognised that I was addicted to it. I was addicted to it. I had a dopamine addiction and it had become an idol. And most of that was pointed out by my daughters. My two daughters, um, one of which kept saying, I'm very jealous of you, you've got a phone. Why are you always on your phone? Suddenly I was hearing these words and thinking, this is becoming a problem. And then Flo, my little three-year-old daughter, was taking my phone off charge and bringing it to me as though it was frankincense. <laughs> it's like, here's, here's the thing that's most important in your life, Dad. And it shocked me. I suddenly just saw myself almost in the mirror, just going, what is this thing that has control of me that I, I refresh when I know there's not even any updates? I was addicted to it, and it had become an idol. And I had to, I had to set it to the side. It's been tremendously freeing to do that. We live in a society that doesn't even recognise the idols it worships. I think in this society, we don't even really often know what an idol is. Let's have a little look at what Tim Keller says, defining idols. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life, should you lose it, maybe your phone, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. He goes on to say, we think that idols are bad things. I think we fall into that trap. We think idols are bad things. But that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. Do we recognise the idols in our life? In Corinth, they hadn't recognised the idols in their lives. Society has lost perspective when it comes to idols. You see, there's this spiritual narrative of doubt which seems to be created around the accommodation of our desires. Here are a few examples that might feel quite familiar. Did God really say that your phone shouldn't be an idol? Did God really say that? Did God really say you mustn't get angry with another driver on the road? Did God really say you can't look at pornography? Did God really say it's wrong to crave and desire money, power and security? Did God really say... Where have we heard that before? Where have we heard that phrase before? Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The devil wheedles his way into our thinking, casting doubt and deception 
around the integrity of how God is asking us to live our lives. But it's not just Adam and Eve who lost perspective by eating the fruit. We see this play out throughout Scripture. Why did the Israelites construct a golden calf to worship? Because they lost perspective. They forgot who God was. They forgot all that he had done for them, that he had brought them out of Egypt and provided for them. And they constructed an idol to focus on instead of God. And did they somehow come out of it and regain perspective and get rid of the idol? No. Moses had to return down from the mountain and destroy it. Why did David go after Bathsheba and have Uriah killed in battle? Because he lost perspective. He became consumed by his sexual urges and completely forgot God's commands. Did David suddenly regain perspective and realise what he'd done? No. Nathan had to arrive and rebuke him for him to realise what he'd done. Friends, sometimes we need that challenge to come in order to bring realisation to our situations and our choices. Have you lost perspective? What Paul's saying in the passage is that this pattern of behaviour can't just continue and be compatible with kingdom living. What does Jesus say about this? Oh, sorry. This is what Jesus says about this. Matthew chapter 5 again. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Does he mean this literally? Of course not. We'd all be limbless. <laughs> Jesus is using hyperbole to emphasise his point. And here's what he's really saying. Stop sinning. What is the last thing, the final word that he has for the woman caught in adultery? John chapter 8. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, encountering Jesus brings transformation. And we must choose to leave behind sin and press on to the kingdom. And Paul reinforces this message at the end of the passage. This is right at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Take encouragement with this. I want to do a little illustration for you that I hope will be helpful in unpacking this. Okay, so for those listening online um, afterwards, uh, I'm holding a, a 10 metre rope, it's 10 millimetre stick, um, and I've got this uh, little five centimetre red patch right at the end that I'm holding. Now I want you to imagine that this rope just goes on forever, just keeps going and going and going. And now I want you to imagine that this rope is a timeline of your existence. 
Okay? This is a timeline of your existence, and it goes on forever. Now, do you see this red part? This little red part here. This would represent your time on Earth. You've got a few short years to live, and then we've got all of eternity. All of eternity. A few short years to live, and then eternity. And the problem is that some of us, all we think about is this little red part. We're consumed with this little red part. We're so focused on it. Some of us think, okay, if I, if I work really hard here, and then I save, 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 and get as much money as possible, then I'll really enjoy that bit there, <laughs> right at the end. What about this part? Who's thinking about this part? See, the Bible teaches that the choices that we make in this bit determine how this bit is spent. The choices that we make in this part determine that eternity. And what Paul says, and I love this, is I'm going to live my life for this mission. I'm going to live my life with this focus. I'm going to spend my life for the moment that I cross that finish line. Like a runner, I'm just focused on that finish line. He says he doesn't want to get distracted with the temptations available to enjoy. Sex, money, idolatry. He doesn't want any of it. He is so focused on the kingdom and crossing that finish line. Paul won't fall for the deception. He is living for eternity. Folks, are we living for eternity? Or are we consumed with this little red part? I want to close with a few words from one of my favourite bands. They won't be up on the screen. I'll just read them to you. Uh, the band is called Switchfoot. Some of you will have heard of them. It's this one song that they've got. I just want to read you these lyrics. We want more than this world's got to offer. We want more than the wars of our fathers. And everything inside screams for second life. We were meant to live for so much more. Have we lost ourselves? We were meant to live for so much more. Have we lost ourselves? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth, that even when it's challenging, we're to wrestle with it. We thank you so much that you help us regain perspective. When we've got focused on the wrong things, when we've got sidetracked, your cross enables us to regain perspective, focus on eternity and focusing on your kingdom. We thank you for Paul's words that we've read and run through. We thank you for Paul's focus, not on this life, but on building your kingdom. I pray that you will challenge us, Lord. In Jesus' name.
Amen.